Our young people may be dismissed at this time for children's church. And as they leave, please join me in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We will pick up in our study following the third miracle that John describes Jesus accomplishing in raising up the 38-year-old sick man, 38 years in sickness, I should say, man that was invalid, and the stir that this caused within the Jerusalem community. John chapter 5, and I will begin reading in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling himself God, his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgments to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Let's pray before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we do want to plead with you that through your spirit you might activate our understanding, activate our hearts as we fix them on the glory of Christ, all that he is and all that he's done, and all that you would have us to be because of that knowledge of Christ your Son. Stir within our hearts a greater passion for Jesus. We pray that you will stir within our hearts a greater desire to serve Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be devoted to Jesus, to serve even the people of Jesus. Father, we pray that this morning will be a time when we do worship you, even as we look at the written word before us. Allow me to speak well on these things clearly, and allow us to clearly discern and understand them as well, and apply them to our lives, and we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This particular series of verses is identifying, once again, the period of Christ's ministry when the hostilities of his opponents sharply rose and would ultimately lead him to the cross. That the Jews would express the kind of hostility that we witness in this fifth chapter is a bit difficult or troubling for our hearts to discern because the Jewish leaders in that community had possession and knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, including the messianic prophecies that would have foretold what they are to look for as Messiah comes. And remember, the Jews were looking for the coming of Messiah, and their Messiah stands before them, displaying his works as well as his words, and there these are experts in the Old Testament scripture. They should have seen. They should have recognized the signs. But just as troubling is the fact that Jesus Christ was doing what is good and right according to the scriptures. And these works prompted the Jews to persecute Jesus and even seek his death. This is troubling for us to read in the text. Because I would like to think if I was back then and I saw Jesus and I heard him preach... I would be drawn, the passion of my heart would be drawn to him. But in reality, it wouldn't have been. Unless the Spirit of God was opening my heart to see who Christ is. Remember, these are religious men. They had the scriptures in their hearts and minds, at least to some degree. And here they see this man, Jesus, very much like them. And we maybe picture Jesus like the pictures in our Sunday school papers, where Jesus is walking around with that radiant glow. 
and his pure white clothes and his evenly shaved beard. In reality, wouldn't he have looked just like the rest of us? Very common. In fact, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah chapter 53 says there wasn't anything really desirable about him that we should be drawn to him. He was very common in that sense. How would we have perceived the identity of Christ? In this discourse in John chapter 5, Jesus will identify to the Jewish leaders that his credibility rests on four witnesses. The prophecy of John the Baptist, and we'll see this in our coming studies. The works of Christ will witness about him. God the Father will give testimony to the Son. And of course, the written word itself. The offense of the Jews to the gospel work of Jesus Christ shows to us a pattern of rejection that all gospel ministers can expect from unbelievers in the world, and that most especially includes religious unbelievers. Last week, as we started this chapter, we recognized the miracle and its consequences from verse 1 to verse 18, and how that set the stage for what we're going to begin to study this morning, the very self-proclamation of Christ himself. We observed from that miracle that it set in motion a response by the Jews, which demanded, in turn, a response from Christ. And we're going to study that response from Christ this morning as our text. But it's important for us to keep fresh in our minds why this came about. Jesus had healed a man, an invalid, for 38 years. He did it on the Sabbath. He commands the man to rise and walk, take up your bed and and go your way. And that aroused the Jews because that man had broken their Sabbath rules. When the Jews learned that it was Jesus who had healed this man on the Sabbath and had instructed this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, this is when John says persecution began to intensify for Jesus because he was doing, notice, these things on the Sabbath, verse 16. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Healing people. Making them whole again. And apparently there were other things that they were observing Jesus doing on the Sabbath that violated their ethics. What brought the persecution to a fever pitch is in verse 17 where Jesus declares that he works till now because the Father works till now, declaring he is equal with the Father. And the Jews, verse 18, clearly understood that, that Jesus was declaring his equality with God the Father. And so their persecution intensifies and they seek to kill him because not only has he violated their Sabbath rules, but now he was committing blasphemy. And this intensified their intention to have Jesus killed. And that brings us to what we're going to look at this morning, the testimony of Christ, the self-proclamation of Jesus Christ and its implications Beginning in verse 19, Jesus Christ addresses the failure of the Jews to discern who he was and why he came. You're going to observe here that in regard to the subject of the Sabbath laws, Jesus does not defend himself or he doesn't try to address their misunderstanding or the error of their ways in regard to the Sabbath. He seems to bypass this subject completely and rather he goes to exposing the air of their hearts in regard to who he is and how they perceived him. John MacArthur made this comment. Instead, Jesus responded in a far more radical way. He maintained that he was equal with God and thus had a right to do whatever he wanted to do on the Sabbath. That's how Jesus addressed this Sabbath issue. It was declaring, this is who I am. I think one of the amusing things that we see sometimes in the news is that those that commit a crime leave rather obvious evidences. And I've heard this particular scenario a couple of times, but I'm recalling just a couple of years ago how a a bank robber entered into a bank, didn't want to use his voice, he was hooded so people would not identify him, and he slips a note to the bank teller demanding money and claiming he's armed. And you probably heard this one. 
So the gal gave, her, gave him the money and off he went. But on the other side of that note was his identification. Apparently he wrote it on a bank slip or something that had his name, his identity. Obviously it was not hard to track this man down. Jesus is now revealing to these men his identity. And in other scriptures, other gospel scriptures, we read how Jesus tried to keep this a little bit veiled so that his time would not come too quickly. Now Jesus is becoming more open here in John chapter 5 and be very explicit about his identity. This is a self-identity, a self-proclamation that he's giving to these Jewish rulers. And it's almost comical that these religious men would come to the Creator God and fix their own expectations on the Sabbath laws. Back in Genesis, we read that after six days of creation were completed, God rested from his work. And from this, years later, the Mosaic law of Sabbath rest would come. Over the generations, in a supposed effort to protect the seventh-day Sabbath rest, the Jews had established their own particulars, and I mentioned this last week. There were 39 specific particulars or distinctives that they used to define what Sabbath rest was to look like. Kent Hughes in his commentary, Pastor Kent Hughes, identified just a few of those. And I want to share those with you so it lays out something of the context of what Jesus is dealing with as the Creator standing before these religious men. It was forbidden, apparently, to look in a mirror on the Sabbath for fear that a person might see gray hair and be tempted to reach up and pluck it out. That would be considered work. You were not allowed to wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because if they accidentally fell out, you would be tempted to bend down and put them back into your face, which again, would be work. You could wear a handkerchief, but you could not carry one. This one I find particularly amusing. You were allowed to travel a thousand yards from your home and not be considered work. But if you wanted something a little farther away, you had a problem. So they came up with a solution. You could carry a thousand-yard rope with you and leave your home and at that thousand-yard mark tie the rope and you could go an extra thousand yards because that rope would be considered part of your home. But do you see a problem there? You got to carry that rope, don't you? And that's considered work. This one is particularly funny. You are allowed to spit on the Sabbath but you had to be careful not to step in it because that would be considered cultivating the soil, which is farmer's work. These are some of the particulars that the Jewish rulers had written into the Sabbath law. So when they saw that man carrying his mat, they were offended. Not because they broke God's laws, but because they broke their own laws. These things seem ridiculous to us. But picture these men standing before the Creator God and discussing the parameters of the Sabbath with the one who created that law, the one who did the original creative work and rested on the seventh day. It is not hard to see why Jesus would respond, verse 17, by saying, My Father is working until now. I myself am working. John opened this gospel by telling us that Jesus is that creator. All things came into being through him, remember John writing. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes that in him, in Christ, all things are held together. Do we understand the sixth day creation and the seventh day rest in this context? God, Christ, the creator worked for six days in creating, and then he rested from doing the work of creation. But did he rest? In reality, no. He was busy holding all things together that he'd created. And God has been busy every, ever since, keeping the planets in motion, the sun burning, air for us to breathe, overseeing sovereignly the affairs of his creation. And therefore, Jesus said, my father is working until now. I also am working until now. 
it has to amuse us just a little bit that these men are coming with their particular distinctives and speaking to the Creator God about the parameters of the Sabbath law. The testimony that Jesus gives of himself in this text reveals a number of important explicit truths about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. I'm even reluctant to use the heading that I did here because I'm saying the testimony of Jesus has implications. They're more than implications. I hope you understand that. These are explicit truths that he's telling us about his own identity. Notice how he opens in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you. And two other times he will use that same expression. It means to confirm something, and it is used to consent to the words of another. In the context of Jesus and his union with the Father, what Jesus is saying, this is the truth of God about the identity of myself, the Son. Jesus is saying to these men, God is now speaking truth to you through me, and this is the truth about who I am as the Son of God. Therefore, rather than see these truths as merely implications, these are explicitly declared truths that are implied by the very personhood of Christ. Or we might say explicit implications. We dare not gloss over this section too quickly because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because He is one with the Father, because He is united in the divine work of God. This then is what is true of Him. First, in verses 19 to 23, this is the section we're going to look at this morning. He comes, Christ comes, Messiah comes with divine character. And Jesus discloses that divine character in these verses. It's been said by a number of scholars that this passage in John chapter 5 is one of the most significant declarations of the oneness of the Father with the Son, Jesus Christ. I want to share one of those scholars and his declaration, J.C. Ryle, who you are familiar with. These verses, he writes, begins one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. They show us the Lord Jesus asserting his own divine nature, his unity with God the Father, and the high dignity of his office. Nowhere does our Lord dwell so fully on these subjects as in the chapter before us. Ryle goes on to say, and nowhere, we must confess, do we find out so thoroughly the weakness of men's understanding to know Christ in this way. And I think you and I experience much grace from God from this passage to know Jesus Christ as Jesus is describing himself, what these Jewish leaders were ignorant of. And Jesus was standing right there before them, speaking these things. You and I not only have the written word in John's gospel, John chapter 5 and the riches of what it says here, but we have the spirit of Jesus within to speak God's truth to us truly, truly. Jesus says. God is declaring to you who I am through this text. And we can ask why it is that men can know of Jesus Christ, speak of Jesus Christ even today, and yet not know him in his divine nature. It is because they have not the spirit of Christ as we have this morning. We have before us in this passage a wonderful declaration of Christ, where Jesus himself is revealing his divine nature. And you can follow along in your note sheets. We're going to highlight three of those divine characteristics that Jesus explicitly declares of himself. And I hope as we move our way through these characteristics, we're going to be drawing some application. And I hope to do that a little bit at the end. Jesus begins by declaring the truth of his union with God the Father in verses 19 to 20. Since these Jews were calling his works into question, Jesus responds by saying that he works in perfect harmony with the Father. His words in verse 19 are very interesting to our human minds because at first it seems like Jesus is almost limiting himself. I can't do anything without permission. We might say the same thing. In fact, to a certain degree, we might say along with Jesus, we can't do anything of ourselves unless it's something we see the Father doing. And we want to do what the Father does. 
until we go deeper into the text and we realize Jesus is declaring, I am one with God in this very unique way. Because as we first start verse 19, it doesn't sound very God-like until we understand that Jesus is making himself equal with God in perfect union with the Father's will, the Father's purpose, and hence the Father's work. What Jesus is saying is not possible for there to be a division between me and God the Father. We cannot operate separately. They do the same work. They do it in the same way, notice, from the text. Theirs is a perfect unity. We've often heard the expression, like father, like son. And so often this is very true. A a child may have very similar appearances and characteristics of his father. In some respects, even acting like his father. One thing that I've noticed sometimes is that a, a child, as he grows older, his voice will sound like his dad and he will laugh in exactly the same way or almost exactly the same way as his father and sometimes laugh at the same things. What Jesus describes here goes well beyond any familial resemblance that we've seen at the human level. There's such unity between God the Father and God the Son that it's not possible for these two to work separately or differently. So Jesus says, I cannot do any work apart from what God is doing. It's not possible. You see the unity that is described here? Jesus Christ reveals his subordination to the Father while at the same time expressing his equality to God the Father. It is a perfect, harmonious unity. And such a description can only apply to a divine son because it is also a description of equal intelligence and comprehension. I want you to look back at Isaiah 55 for just a moment which will help us in our understanding of this text in, I, uh, in John chapter 5. Isaiah 55. Look at verse 7, 8, and 9. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will have compassion on him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Notice verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, my, nor are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. Those ways are the works of God. In other words, our works are not the same as God's works. Our thoughts are not like his thoughts. Verse 9, for as the heavens higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts and his works are so far above us that we can't claim to be the same as God. Not in that way. Not in the way that Jesus is describing here in verses 19 and 20 of John chapter 5. I can do nothing of myself unless it is something I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does. And in the same way, in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. You and I can't possibly be shown all things of God because we don't understand all the things of God. We don't understand everything God is doing, but the Son does. And so the Father shows him everything. And the Son accomplishes everything that the Father is doing because he is God. That's the point of the text. That God shows him all things that he's doing. Shows that Jesus has the intelligence, the comprehension to understand all things God. And to engage himself, to apply himself to the work that only God can do. Even a spirit-filled believer, we don't have the capacity to grasp all things that the Father does. Let alone have God show us even greater things but not so of God's Son. There's a perfect unity and equality of intelligence and knowledge and ability to do the work that God does. There's an equality and ability to put this comprehension into an active work. We may argue that we have unity with God, and sometimes religious men may boast of even having more unity with God than they actually do have. The Pharisees, the religious rulers of Christ's day, were certainly of that stock. 
But none can presume to be so united with the Father such that all things God is doing, is shared with us, is understood by us, is practiced by us in such a way that God does them. That's a description that only applies to the Son. And that Son can only be God himself. The reason that Jesus gives for this perfect unity Notice verse 20 is found in the love that exists between father and son. Out of the father's love for his son, he shows the son all that he is doing. Nothing is held back. Nothing is left in the dark. Nothing is left unexplained. There's nothing kept secret. And just as important, there is nothing that is objected to. The son doesn't come along and say, Father, I got a better idea. I bet you didn't think of this. Father and son share the same purpose and passion. They seek the same end. They have the same mind as to how that end is to be accomplished. It's noteworthy that Jesus does not use the agape love word here. It's phileo, the brother love, the familial love, a love between a father and his son. We've heard it said that when people make their living of creating fine foods, They'll have a secret recipe, and they don't give that out to anybody. Kentucky Fried Chicken is one of them. When it's fresh, I love that stuff. When it's been sitting under the heap lamp for 24 hours, not so much. But I love the secret recipe on the outside of that chicken stuff. Somebody that creates that kind of a recipe, they're going to reserve that for family like a son. And this is the sense of the perfect family love that Jesus enjoys with his father. All the trade secrets have been disclosed to the son because he is perfectly loved as a son. And the perfection of the father's love says that he fully trusts his son. He can expect his son to do everything that he wants done and as the father wants it done. And in return... The son is going to respond in perfect obedience. He will do exactly what the father wants. It's a reciprocal love. It's a beautiful picture of phileo, the love of family. And in this way, the son's obedience shows that his, his love for the father is equal to the father's love for him. And I want you to notice here how love and obedience belong together. Notice in our culture how law and obedience is downplayed as restrictive and harsh and can't possibly reveal the loving nature, the gracious nature of God. But within the Godhead itself is displayed this perfect, beautiful picture of love and obedience the way it ought to be. The earthly life of Jesus Christ was a disclosure to men of the divine nature of God the Father to mankind. Jesus is revealing himself to the world. And as he's doing it, he's revealing God. This is what God looks like because I am God the Son. The tone of this description of unity from love is the present relationship of God, the God of heaven with the Son of Man on earth. As Jesus is communicating this language to these Jewish leaders, he's identifying his present condition before God as he took on humanity and was standing before them, looking very much like a common man, but exhibiting divine characteristics that they had not yet seen, and many of them would not ever see. As God's Son took upon himself humanity, and lived among men, even this change, as he stepped out of glory and took on humanity, even this separation between father and son, if we can even call it a separation, it in no way disrupts the unity and the love between father and son, so that Jesus, in his humanity, can do the work that the father was doing. Do you see the justification for healing a man on the Sabbath? And declaring... The work that my father is doing now, I'm doing as well. Great works have been done so far by the son. But even greater works are yet to come, he says in verse 20. In his humanity, 
Jesus is fully loved as a son, is fully trusted by his father to work in unity as they've always done in eternity past. The life that he lived, the work that he accomplished before mankind gave testimony to his deity. Truly the son of God is God. Bringing us to verse 21 where we see his proclamation of divine power. He continues to describe himself in terms of a giver of life now. Based on the unity that Father and Son have in doing the good work of the gospel, this means that Jesus himself has the power to raise the dead, even as the Father has the power to raise the dead. Resurrection life, after all, is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's what makes it good news. It wouldn't be really good news if Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross and even merited for us the forgiveness of sin if it didn't accomplish something. If it didn't bring us back from spiritual death into life. If it didn't grant that we would be raised up from the grave and we would live eternally. What kind of a gospel would it be if God just declared your sins are now forgiven but you're still going to hell? You're still spiritually dead before me. This is a description of God's power in verse 21. As this Jesus declares, as the Father raises the dead, so I, as the Son, raise the dead. When one honestly considers what Jesus is disclosing about himself in this passage, it is clear that to simply declare Jesus is God is not enough. Jesus opens his gospel in this way, writing, or John opens his gospel this way, writing at the beginning of this narrative that Jesus is the Word and the Word was with God because the Word was God, speaking of Christ. And as the Word, he is the one who discloses to humanity what God wants us to know about himself. There will be those who respond to this claim by saying, I don't believe that Jesus is God. Or they deny God altogether. I don't believe in a God, period. The more religious of the world are going to embrace God, but they're going to think of Jesus as maybe nothing more than an important teacher or even a prophet sent of God. Still others, as we are hearing in our Sunday school class this morning, are going to claim that Jesus is a God, meaning he's one among many others, but certainly not the God. Scripture does not stop at merely telling us that Jesus Christ is God. The God that took on human flesh and made atonement for the sins of his people. Here Jesus discloses to us his very nature and work as God. He goes much further than simply saying, I am God. I am equal with God. Let me show you what I am about. Let me open up my nature for you to understand what I mean when I say, I am the Son of God. Many might be able to claim unity of love with God the Father, though not in the absolute perfection that we see in verse 19 and 20. But none but God can claim to give resurrection life equal to that of God the Father. This further establishes that Jesus is very clearly claiming equality with God. You often have these discussions, don't you, with some of the cults and other religions. I know for many years I re received this phone call from the same person at least four different times. And I think I shared this before. I haven't heard from this guy for a couple of years now. But he opened the conversation in exactly the same way, saying, I just sat down for my lunch break, starting to eat my lunch, and I'm looking at your church website online, going through the doctrinal statement, and I just want you to answer me a question. Of course, the question they want to ask is that in our doctrinal statement, we declare that Jesus, the Son of God, is God. Well, this guy ended up being a Jehovah's Witness. And really all he wanted to do, he didn't want me to answer questions. He wanted to attack. Well, the second time he called, he made the mistake of telling me or introducing himself the same way. I sat down on lunch. I'm looking at your website. And I said, oh, you've talked to me before, haven't you? And he stuttered a bit, but he still went on to his spiel. And all he wanted to do was argue with me. After the third attempt, I just hung up on him because he didn't want to listen to me. But this is the issue here, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the giver of life. Jesus extends his description of the work he has in unity with the Father to include raising the dead just as the Father raises the dead. 
This is a profound statement that can be accomplished in no other but God himself. And yet we have religions today that Jesus uh, never claimed to be God. It's almost as if they have not read John chapter 5. Oh, they probably have read it. They simply have denied the claim. Without question, Jesus is declaring himself to be God. While teaching the deity of Jesus Christ is not limited to the book of John, one has to wonder, what do these religions, what do these cults do with passages like John 1 or John chapter 5? You know, they read something like this and they still deny Jesus is God. The only proof, it only gives proof to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of people not to see what you and I are privileged to see this morning. In chapter 1, Jesus is described as the one who created life out of nothing. Here in chapter 5, Jesus discloses that he is also the one who gives life back to those who are dead, raising the dead and giving life. These are synonymous terms here in verse 21. And Jesus does this life-giving just as God the Father does. We're going to see in our next study as we move into verses 25 and beyond that what Jesus is referring to here is not only spiritual life-giving, but physical life-giving. The body of believers will be raised to newness of life. The body of unbelievers will be raised up as well to judgment. But also Jesus is going to disclose, I have the power to raise spiritually those who are dead to me in their sins and bring them to life again. The point here is that Jesus himself has that power to raise spiritually as well as physically. And he expands this power to give life by saying, I have the authority to give life to whomever I choose, whomever I wish. So not only does he have life-giving power, he owns the authority to give that life. He not only has the power to bring the dead to life, he has the power to make the determination as to who will be raised from the dead. And that has a rather autonomous sound to it, doesn't it? He makes that declaration. Yet we already know it's not autonomy from God the Father. He's already declared in verse 19 and 20, we work in perfect unity. Jesus has already declared his unity with God the Father. Rather, this separates, this autonomy separates the power of Christ's determination from any human factor or outside influence. He doesn't need any help from anybody making this declaration. He doesn't need any help from anybody raising the dead back to life or determining who he is going to raise back to life. He's not bound by human genealogy as if he can only raise up the children of Abraham. He is in no way obligated to recognize and accept other religious viewpoints. Well, they make a good case over here. They have a good argument. They've tried really hard. I have to bring him back to life. He is not bound by that. He's not bound to human reason or the laws of sinful men. He raises to life whom he wishes. And what he wishes is in perfect unity with God the Father because Jesus only does what the Father shows him. And this is a declaration of the autonomy of the Godhead once again. It takes us right back to chapter 1 and what John wrote in verse 12 and 13. But as many as receive him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, meaning born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Because Jesus is God. In James chapter 1 and verse 18, we read, In the exercise of his will, Christ's will, he brought us forth or begat us or caused us to be born again by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. 
in a certain physical sense, Jesus proved this life-giving power as he raised up this lame man. He was declaring to the world, sickness doesn't stop me. 38 years worth of sickness does not prevent me to do what I can do. The people of the Lord's day saw his works at giving life in that limited way, but they were going to see more. Demons would respond to his voice. Nature would respond to his voice. The grave could not hold back those that Jesus called out. This is the giver of life, the creator of life, and the power to give life to the dead, the power to determine the giving of that life belongs to the wishes, the pleasure of Jesus Christ. I've often wished in my studies that God would, ex- ha- would have extended life to those people that were writing commentaries and they died before the other commentaries were written. So in my office, I have several sets of partial New Testament commentaries. And many of these I love to read. But then you turn to Galatians. Oh, they don't have one of those because he died. Oh, if I could have given life, I might have done it. Fortunately, I don't have that power because I don't have the mind of God. But Jesus does. It belongs to him. And it brings us to verse 22 and 23. The honor that is due God through his son. This is one more divine quality that must be considered before we close our study this morning. It is the honor that belongs to God that has been bestowed on Jesus Christ. You will notice in verse 22 to 23, Jesus continues his self-description by teaching that he gives life to whom he wishes because God has appointed his son as the judge. For not even the father judges anyone, Jesus says, but he has given all judgments to the son so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It is well understood by the Jewish leaders that God is judge. He's the eternal judge. He alone can judge the souls of men. But Jesus makes clear here that God the Father has placed that obligation that privilege, that responsibility on the Son and on the Son alone. And because Jesus himself is God, it can be said of Scripture as it does, that God alone judges. And yet Jesus can say at the same time, my Father doesn't do any judging. It's been entrusted entirely up to me. How then can God be the judge? It is because Jesus Christ is God. You can imagine how troubling that would have been for the Jews listening to Jesus give this discourse because they understood that God alone is the eternal judge who presides over the souls of men. But it's equally troubling, I'm afraid, to many today, even within the Christian community, who prefer to think of Jesus in terms of grace and love, at least in their view of what grace and love is. Far too many dismiss the idea that Jesus holds a strict and faithful devotion to the laws of God and that he is going to call all men to give an account of how they have treated those laws. Jesus judging the eternal souls of men and condemning any to a fiery hell simply doesn't set well with many who claim to be Christian. And there are many preachers and authors today that just prefer to do away entirely with eternal judgment Clearly, Jesus is not one of those. Here's one of the very profound description of God's Son, who is sent to be not only the Savior of men, but he is also appointed as the judge over men. Now, some are going to see a contradiction of this because if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 17, and we covered this already, but you will notice these words, for God did not send the Son into the world to what? Judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. As we noted in that study, or in the study of that verse, God sent his son to this earth not to act as judge. He sent him to this earth to be a savior. But that in no way disqualifies him from being the judge that God has appointed him to be. His role as judge was yet to come. His work on earth then was to be savior, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Scripture is clear that God alone is the eternal judge over mankind. But how can God be such a judge when the Father isn't doing any of that judging? Again, it is only because that has been appointed to God the Son, who is appointed by God to judge all of creation. This unity within the Godhead to judge men was preached by Paul to the city of Athens. And I'd like you to see the language that Paul uses here in preaching this message from Acts chapter 7 and verse 30 to 31. Because we see this understanding of God being judge, but yet it's the Son that is doing the judging. Paul writes, Acts 17, beginning verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is that him that was raised from the dead? We know him to be Christ Jesus, right? That's who Paul is declaring God has appointed as judge. God will judge but it will be through his son, the one appointed as judge. Paul clearly shows that God will judge all men, but it will happen through Christ, who is God the Son. The Apostle John described the day when Jesus Christ would be seated on his great white throne judgment seat. And we're going to see this in Revelation chapter 20. But again, this is the Apostle John writing these words. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20 so that we might picture Jesus Christ seated on that throne and acting as the appointed judge. Revelation 20 verses 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. How do we know who him is? It's because Jesus has already declared, I am that one appointed to judge the great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And of course, we know that at the end of the story, they were consigned to eternal judgment by that judge. He is not only the future judge. He is also sitting on his throne today, presiding over the affairs of men. He is not only the future judge. He is judging right now, judging the affairs of men. The purpose for which God has entrusted all judgment to his son. Notice going back to our text, is so that all would honor the Son as they honor the Father. In other words, there will be equal honor for both Father and Son. Jesus must be honored as God because that is who he is. And the person that refuses to honor Jesus as God does not honor the Father either. This is a direct condemnation of any man or any religion that claims to honor God yet refuses to recognize Jesus Christ as God. How God's Son is treated by men is paramount and it's personal with God. Paul wrote that God exalted His Son highly in Philippians chapter 2 with these words. He said, God bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you know the rest, to the glory of God the Father. It glorifies the God of heaven when his Son is recognized for who he is. And this prophecy by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 lets us know that every man will kneel before him. This is not a picture of the church here. This is the unbelieving world that now comes before Christ and they kneel before him. In this life, they rejected him as God. But then as they kneel before that throne, notice they confess, Jesus is Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. It tells us this is how God the Father wants His Son treated. In this life, men and women may choose to ignore the divine honor that belongs to the Son, but the day will come when all are going to come before the throne of the judge and they will face His judgment. And though His judgment will condemn all unbelievers to eternal punishment, nonetheless, they will submit to His Lordship. As John MacArthur wrote, those who believe Him to be anything other than who He truly is will one day face His judgment. How much better to be among those who stand before the throne of Jesus as His redeemed ones, knowing there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have trusted Christ as their Savior we also will stand before him and he will be our judge as well. But that judgment will determine the rewards that he gives to those that faithfully serve him. We will not be judged on our sins. Why? Because the judge was also our savior and he took our judgment upon himself. He was judged in our place when he went to the cross carrying our sins and receiving the judgment or the wrath of God on account of those sins. Jesus did come to be Savior. He's coming again to be Judge. And we're going to close on this point, but I hope that we begin to see the majestic description of Jesus Christ in His divine nature here. And it's because of who Jesus Christ was and is that He did the works that He accomplished all the way from healing an invalid to bearing our sin on Calvary to bring healing to our dead souls. And this understanding of God's Son is not merely to be a heady knowledge that we have of the triune God. Understanding the nature of God declares how we are to be His people as well. Again, it takes us back to John 5 when Jesus stood before these people describing who He is and calling for a response. In your note sheets, I've just highlighted the three points that we've looked at this morning. But I'm hoping we can make a little bit of personal application as we ponder Christ in his majestic glory and his divinity. Go back with me to John's gospel and look at chapter 17 where Jesus prays for his people and consider with me the unity within the Godhead that he demonstrates. What does that to mean to you and I here today as believers? Listen to how the Savior prays for us in regard to this unity and notice how he reflects on the unity between the Son and the Father. Verse 20, John 17, I do not ask on behalf of these ones alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Speaking of the church, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see the unity of the Godhead is an example for our unity here. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me the glory which you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. When we look at the perfect unity of the Godhead, Father and Son, we should want to emulate that unity in our love for one another. Jesus said the Son can do nothing of Himself. Did you catch that in John 5? The Son can do nothing of Himself unless He's seen it in the Father. How different this is from much of our thinking. Our attitudes can be far too autonomous. We can think we have the better idea, the better program. Oh, we're going to do this project, but it's going to go my way because I know the right way. I'm the better person for the job. We tend to think like this and work like this. Can we say like Jesus, I can do nothing of myself? Do we give preference to one another as we're directed in Philippians 2? The unity within the Godhead is a reflection of the familial love, the, the love between Father and Son in the Godhead. Can we say this of our unity, that we do the works of God in like manner because of our love for each other? These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
do we endeavor to be as united as believers as we see within the Godhead? Because that's the prayer of Christ for us. That's what he desires for us. A challenge to us. Do we labor together for Christ in this way? It's also a challenge to those who are not united together really with the church, but who call themselves believers. And they keep themselves on the fringes, not really laboring together with the body of Christ. Look to the Father. Look to the Son. He's an example to us of what unity is and what he desires for his church. This is what he prayed for. Second, give consideration to the divine power of Christ. With regard to this authority and this power that Jesus has to raise from the dead, I think the most obvious implication for us is that we trust him as our Savior. And as believers, most of us here today would affirm, yes, I've put my trust in Christ the Savior because he's the giver of life. But we can go beyond that. If he is the God who saves, granting eternal life, he can be trusted with every aspect of our lives. He exercises the sovereign authority of God overall. Do I live in continual trust of his power and his authority to govern every detail of my life? This is an area I struggle with, and probably you do as well. Do I trust him with every detail of my life, especially the catastrophes, the crises, the problems. And third, consider the divine honor of Christ because God has placed his son in a position as the sovereign judge so that all will honor him. Our text tells us the response that we're supposed to have. So John 5 is easy on that one. We are to honor Jesus as we honor God the Father. For us to bear the name of God's Son, to call ourselves Christian or followers of Christ, then demands that we recognize the divine honor of Christ with more than just our words. Our lives have to reflect that honor. Our response should be one of loving obedience. How we treat His Word. We show honor to Him as we devote ourselves to Him and to His people, the church. We honor him as we worship him corporately as well as privately. We can tend to think that we've honored Jesus sufficiently if we've simply declared Jesus is God. But do we honor him as we honor the Father? Is the importance of Christ in my life evident in how I live? I'm going to close with yet again a a statement by J.C. Ryle and I trust that you'll appreciate what he's seeing here. Because what he's saying is that Christ should be all-encompassing. Now let us think whether it is possible to make too much of Christ in our religion. Can we make too much of Christ? If we've ever thought that, let us cast aside the thought forever, both in his own nature as God and in his office as commissioned mediator. He is worthy of all honor He that is one with the Father, the giver of life, the King of kings, the coming judge, can never be too much exalted. Christ Jesus is appointed as judge that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. We can be prone to give Jesus this little religious place in our lives. Can we exalt him too much? Can we make too much of Christ? Can we make him too big a deal in our lives? The answer is no. He is to be honored as God. And we do this in how we live our lives, how we communicate with each other, how we serve him, how we devote ourselves to him, how we worship him. And I don't mean just how we sing to him. That indeed is worship. How we pray to him, how we study him, how we tell others about him, how we disciple others in him. We can never make too much of Christ. Let us honor him as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you for this exposition from John 5 that teaches us much more about your son than possibly we have given meditation to before. And I pray as your church,
that we would never be guilty of not making enough of Christ, not exalting him enough. We pray that we would recognize Jesus as our judge and honor him as we honor you. I pray, Father, we would recognize the power entrusted to your Son, the giver of life, and that we would entirely trust ourselves to him. And because we have been privileged to see the unity between you, Father, and the Son, that we would also be aroused, be united one with another in Christ with you, serving together, loving together, exhibiting the glory of Christ in our community, our church community. We pray to this end in Christ's name. Amen.